Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Deborah Debili Diet Courville, author of The Laporte Inheritance. Deborah Debili Diet Courville, uh, you are the author of a book called The Laporte Inheritance, an historical novel of French Asylum. What is French Asylum? French Asylum is, was, it is now a historic site, but uh, 200 some odd years ago, about in 1793, 4, it was uh, begun as a little village, a settlement for French nobility who were fleeing the French Revolution. Um, and the, it's a long, kind of a long story, but we have a little bit of time. There were a bunch of investors in Philadelphia who had recently lost some money um, in, in Europe because Europe had sort of an economic downturn in the 1750s. And they were looking to recoup their investments. So they looked at the north branch of the Susquehanna River and saw that there was tr were trading posts in Wilkes-Barre and trading posts up in north in uh, Tioga Point near Sayre. But there was nothing in between. And they said, hey, wouldn't it be dandy to have a little settlement there and a trading post and, you know, get some people? And so that was as far as that went. And then all the French people who were settling in Philadelphia, many of whom were refugees at that time, from the French Revolution came on board and said, how about if we create an asylum, meaning refuge, asylum, for the people who are fleeing the guillotine? And the idea took off and the land was acquired. They started with a, a few hundred acres, but it expanded, the, they called themselves the asylum company, the investors, and expanded to literally two million acres over Bradford County, Sullivan County, and. It, now we have 23 acres left, but um, so that's it. Started as a as a grand plan to be a, a self-sufficient trade post and village and a place where those fleeing France could go. Whose idea was it in the first place? The group of investors. Um, Stephen Girard was one. Yeah, Theophilus Casanova was the another one. I just like his name, uh, and there were several others: Hollenbeck, um, John Keating. Uh, if you, depending on who you read, they all think that whoever they're writing about was the main guy, but it was a consortium. It was a group of people, maybe 10 or 11, and they happened to meet up with um, Bartholomew Laporte and Omer Talon. Now, Omer Talon had been King Louis XVI's uh, avocat general, so his, like his attorney general, but clearly when Louis XVI, things went not so good for him. Omer had to flee, and he ended up in, in Philadelphia, and thereby hangs a tail, but I'll get back to that. Um, so they were the ones, I think, in, in all the research that I did for the book, I think they're the ones who kind of said, yeah, we'll, we'll make this happen. We'll join in, uh, in with you, and we'll make this asylum happen. 
So the, the scouts were sent up to check out this land, scouts who had been quite familiar with that area because they'd done surveying and so forth before. And Omer Talon and Bartholomew Laporte went up and said, yes, this is wonderful, it's great. And the land was purchased. In some cases, they purchased it two times over because that was during the, uh, the conflict with, with some uh, uh, deeds having been issued by George III and some by William Penn. And everybody, you know, oh, that's my land. No, it's not. That's my land, but I have a deed, but so do I. <laughs> so they just purchased it twice. And the way the asylum company was set up to work, uh, if you wanted to settle there, you bought into it. You bought a share in the company. And for your share, which you could take up until three years to begin paying back, because the theory was by then you'd be making money, and so would the settlement, and then you'd have money to, to begin to work off your debt, um, you would receive a half acre of land and a house, which was two up, two down, two bed chambers, two reception rooms, a cookhouse, covered walkway, a dining room, and under the dining room was the wine cellar for your investment. And of course, then you could hire people to farm for you, raise livestock for you, et cetera, et cetera, engage in whatever. Most of the people who settled there weren't tradespeople. Some learned to be tradespeople, and other people just hired people to, to do things for they them. They were the aristocracy? They were. They were the nobility, because that was who were facing the guillotine in France. How did they find out about this place in the first place? I, I don't really know. I would imagine word of mouth. Um, Philadelphia, because it was the capital of the United States at that time in 1793, was um, they, there was a large French population there as well. I think when the French came over, they just landed there because it was the capital, and some also up in Boston, but, but the majority of them were. And there was a thriving um, French uh, society, if you will, and Society Hill is where that started, if you know Philadelphia. Um, so I think word of mouth. Once people, when, as people landed, they knew people, or they knew people who knew people who knew people who were there, and they heard about it, and they decided to go. In the book, I have Bartholomew Laporte coming up with the clever idea. Again, who knows if he did or not, but my Bartholomew Laporte did of going to meet the ships, and if there were. French nobility coming off, he would say, welcome, you know, come here, come there. He knew by that time he knew everybody in Philadelphia. And he could say, hey, let me tell you about this place, you know, French Asylum. Now, I wanted to tell you the story about Omer Talon. He was, as I said, the attorney general for Louis XVI, and he needed to flee um, France, or he chose to. He didn't want to lose his head. So he went to Marseille. I'm sure he knew that that was part of France, even though it was in the south of France, but it was a huge shipping port. And he thought, I've got to be able to get a ship there. But he was being followed by the police. They were checking uh, passenger manifests. There was, it was very hard for him to find a ship. And he met up with Bartholomew Laporte. And the story goes that Bartholomew, clever man, who was a wine merchant, said to Armer Talon, well, uh, I know, I'll get you out of France. And Omer Talon was like, how are you going to do that? And he put him in a wine barrel and rolled him on board with the rest of the wine shipment that he was shipping out of Marseille at the time. They got to England, the ship bound for England, and England was neutral at that time. So he was safe, and he got out, and then they, they had become obviously become friends after undergoing that, and uh, they decided to come to the United States. Where'd you find that story? A couple different places, a couple different places. This was the only fictional book I've written and as you know, I write murder mysteries, and, and I've written other historical fiction, but this is the only 
fictional book I've ever written that I really thought I should do a bibliography for. But by the time that thought dawned on me, I was so deep into the research, and I didn't have everything written down, or so I just said, forget it, it's fiction. <laughs> well, so I can't tell you, oh, yeah, that was in such and such. But it's, it's a, it's a well-known story. It's in two or three different um, writings that are not too far removed from the period. So it makes a good story. Whether it's absolutely true, who knows? Why did you decide to take the historical fiction route instead of a nonfiction book? Fiction's more forgiving in the sense that, as I said earlier uh, when we were chatting before the show started, if I couldn't find information, like the name of the boat ship, excuse me, that Talon and Laporte came on, came over to the United States on, I looked everywhere. I could not find the name, so I had to make it up. So I made it up. Uh, I, I made it up having read about ships of the time and what they were called and where they were from and, and tried to make it as authentic and likely as possible, but it's still made up. That's why. Because historical fiction, so much is lost that you can make it up. But if you're just doing historical nonfiction, there'd be a lot of holes where you have a footnote saying, I do not know what the name of the ship is. And fiction is the genre I write in. So that was the other reason, really. The characters in your book are all real? Majority of them are real. Um, there are a few add-ins just f to further the story and to, you know, I don't know. For instance, there's a scene where Elizabeth, who marries Bartholomew eventually, um, has two of her friends and they're acting out plays or something. Well, I don't know who her friends were at Asylum. We don't have any documents that say that, so I just sort of made them up. But they're not central to the story. But the central characters, they're all real. They're all historical people. And in, in as far as I could find anything about what kind of people they were, they're accurate as far as that goes. What kind of documents exist from Asylum? There's, thank goodness we have the Internet now. When I was in grad school, we didn't have the Internet. <laughs> so it was just paper. Um, but... The Internet has a lot of um, books and documentation, ship manifests, um, even uh, uh, trade uh, agreements, um, letters of credit. And we have some of the, that type of document also in our research library at French Asylum. And I'm very fortunate as a board member to um, have had access to the library and our wonderful site director, Lee Kleinsmith, who um, was really very supportive and was like, well, here, you can look at anything you want. I was like, oh, thank you. So it was nice to be able to, to paw through all of that and, and see what we had. But unfortunately, nobody has, like, diaries of so-and-so. Or The closest I got to that was the Duc de la Rochefoucauld had come. He had done a great tour of North America, and he had visited Asylum in 1795, I think. And he had written his travels in North America in French, which is what I read it in. I think it's been translated, but... Um, so that was a contemporary primary source. But as far as primary source materials of people who lived at Asylum, I have not found that. The closest to that I got was a letter that was in a shoebox of stuff that was handed to me <laughs> one day. So here, um, it was a letter actually written by Bartholomew. And I just, I got all teared up when I saw it because it was like touching something that this man I'd been writing about because I was about halfway through the book and there was this letter and I just I gasped I just picked it up it was so exciting but he, he was talking about sheep 
<laughs> it wasn't too exciting. He is the Laporte that uh, the Laporte inheritance is named after? Well, it's really for the family. He would, I would say he would be the paterfamilias of the, the, the head of the family because he was the, the Laporte who came over to his island and started with Omer Talon, uh, not started as island, but governed, shall we say, as island. They were kind of the, the mayors, the directors. Um, Omer Talon was the director, and then uh, Bartholomew Laporte was his right-hand man. And then after a few years, um, Omer Talon's wife, who had stayed in Belgium, um, was ill. So Omer Talon left, and Bartholomew Laporte kind of took over running the place. And then in 1802, when Napoleon pardoned everyone who had fled the revolution and been against the revolution and so forth, um, the majority of the 50 families, 50 or so, who had come to his island left, all but four. Um, the Laportes, the Omeys, the Prévost, and the Lefebvre families stayed in the area, stayed at his island. But of course, as they aged out, their children moved elsewhere. And so by 1830-ish, there was pretty much nothing left, you know. What's there now? Uh, beautiful countryside and a house that John Laporte, who was the son of Bartholomew Laporte, built in 1836 called the Laporte House. <laughs> Very clever. Um, but it's, it's a lovely French colonial dwelling. And uh, John Laporte used it as his summer home and as his family used it as their summer home until after the Civil War. And then they sold it on to another local family, the Hagermans, and they stayed in it until the 1960s, I believe. And then French's Island Incorporated took it over and ran it as a historical So it's open to the public? Site. It is. Mm -hmm. Usually from Memorial Day-ish through sometime in September, depending on, and sometimes we have special events in between all of that. But we usually have events every month. Um, if you go there, what do you see? What kind of events? We have Revolutionary War encampments and skirmishes. We have, we're having a Napoleonic one. We have um, Civil War. There, because we have 22 acres and it's perfect for that kind of thing. Um, we have living history reenactments. We'll ha we have market fairs. Um, we have a family fun day. And uh, I'm probably forgetting a whole bunch of things, but we had an artisans and art exhibit and we'll probably do that again. So. Plus, there's always tours of the Laporte House and just some artifacts and history about the place that you, you want to learn about and you get an and opportunity you're part of that. to see it. Yeah. I, I'm on the board and I also um, docent. I, I give tours at the house and I, I curate their period clothing exhibit, which is, um, I was very excited. I do that for another historic home in the area, the oldest house, which is in Laceyville, which is 50 years older than the Laporte House. Um, but when I got on the board, at, the, at French's Island and I went through the clothes that they had. They had quite a bit. It was Most of it is mid to late Victorian, but they had a lot of really neat stuff. And so combining with my own collection, because I collect authentic period clothes too, we have a display of period clothes from about 1772, and it's real, not fake, <laughs> um, up through about World War I. And the displays change too. The, the clothing displays. Do you wear any of it? Well, some. Um, most of the stuff that's that old is way too fragile. So I 
put it on the mannequins. Actually, my friends kind of, I call it dress the dummies. And <laughs> my friends and I go, and we make a day of it. And we, we dress the mannequins, and we just leave them there. But it's, it's really kind of fun. And it's been, it was fun, and it is fun to stage that house, and just like the, the oldest house, to stage it and cha change the displays and change the emphasis de depending on the exhibits. So French's Island was essentially a planned community? It was. They laid out the streets and the houses? They and did, and there were um, nine streets. One central boulevard called Le Grand Boulevard that was 100 feet wide, which is pretty impressive, especially for that time, even this time it's pretty impressive. Um, and then there were uh, four other roads and then five going this way, crossroads. In the center was a two-acre town square, and there was a church and a theater, shops, um, marketplaces. There was a green. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There was even a, a dance, I wouldn't say a dance hall, but like a dance pavilion. They had dances, obviously, band, concerts, music. Um, some of the people who also settled at French's Island had come from... Um, the islands that were uh, French. Oh, Haiti. Uh, Haiti, right. Mm -hmm. And Santo Domingo, especially, or Saint Domingue. And that had been a French colony. And there was an uprising there about the same time, a slave uprising. Some of the French nobility who had settled there fled and ended up at asylum, and they brought their slaves with them. So there were some slaves, there were some also some servants, because the French people hired local people to be their servants. Slavery was legal in Pennsylvania at the time? Um, I don't know. I have no clue. You tell me. Probably not. I don't know. I, maybe it was back then. But the, the slaves had come with them, and the servants, as long as you paid them something, which could be a dime, um, they, they were, that was legal, so they were working. And they were usually the musicians, you know, and they're the ones who would play. And the, uh, the community was built, as I said, with the, the town square and the shops and so forth. And then around them on those streets, were the residential areas, those half-acre plots with the house and so forth, sort of like Levittown, but an old-fashioned Levittown. And beyond that were the orchards. Um, we still have some original apple trees and pear trees and w French lilacs too. And then beyond that were the grazing lands, pasture lands and so forth. The French were quite good with animal husbandry. Well, what so, were the houses like? Uh, two bed chambers on the top floor and two reception rooms on the ground floor. They were made of wood, so they were wood log cabins in the sense of they were wood, frame homes though, and the, the corners were finished. So they, it wasn't like the rounded corners like the log cabin we think is so cute, we like it. But in those days that was very sophisticated to have you know finished corners. Um, and underneath uh, they, the, the dining room was separate and the cookhouse was separate from the main house because in those days they didn't want the smell of food in the house. So under the dining room they had a, a, a wine cellar and then the dining room was connected to the cookhouse by a covered walkway. And then they had a whole half acre so they planted gardens and they had gazebos and trellises. And this is all from contemporary or near contemporary accounts of the settlement. There's a, a young woman, there was a young woman named Elsie Murray, and she was a descendant of the Laportes. I couldn't tell you exactly what, a great-granddaughter, I think. And she uh, wrote a book called Some French Refugees and Their Asylum. Wonderful resource. And she is the one, now she knew people who had been at asylum, and they might have been very old when they ta she talked to them, 
or it might have been the daughters of those people or sons who, but it was within living memory, you know, by that time. And so when she wrote this book, she, that's as close to a primary source as I could get. And it was very interesting to read her account of, hopefully she didn't embellish it, but her account of, of the, uh, the way they lived. So it was the 1790s or 1793, so? 1793, 94. They started, they'd gone in the summer and then in the fall they went back and started actually building the houses. And of course they had to stop for winter. And then they started again. Only a few families came then. The influx, the grand influx was the following year, 1794. How big did it get? 50-ish families. About 50 families, 200 some people at its height. Was it considered a financial success? No. <laughs> no. How, how for big a did few they hope years, it? For a few years. It, it held its own. I think people were fairly sanguine about its future. But then uh, it was like a perfect storm. A lot of things happened. Some of the trade that the French colony had developed, some certain things that they were very good at doing, like maple sugaring and um, the uses for pine pitch that they had developed. Other merchants in the area had said, oh, well, we can do that, and found their own sources. And because the other merchants were bigger and had more trading posts, they undercut French asylum, so the trade dim diminished. Um, when most of the people left in 1802, that was kind of the death knell. Um, and uh, at that time, um, there had been some unpleasantness with the, between the French colony colonists and um, the the settlers, the colonial settlers, if you will. They they thought the French were kind of, actually, I think the colonial settlers thought the French were highfalutin, but they also thought that they were quite interesting the way they they. Uh, lived their lives and, and built their homes and went about their business. But the French looked down on the colonial settlers as almost savage, which of course they weren't, but you know. But the French were the, the aristocrats. Would they have known how to farm? No, no, that's why they hired local help. So they were great for the local economy, but not so much for French asylum. The other thing that happened was some of the investors in asylum company had um, extended their credit beyond what they should have. And so they didn't have very good finances and that impacted asylum. So they ended up, um, when the people all left, um, Bartholomew Laporte, who was, I think, a very clever man, and he could always anticipate. He was a businessman, but he always was looking down the road to see, you know, what are people gonna need five years from now? Let me get it now, let me start it now. He was very clever that way. He um, bought a lot of the land that French Asylum had owned. And then, of course, over the, inter, you know, the subsequent centuries or century and a half, he would sell it or leave it to his son, and his son could sell it off as he saw fit. So, Well, 1793, how, now how far was Asylum from Philadelphia? 300 miles. How would you have gotten there? <laughs> it was not easy. The gentleman I mentioned before, um, the Duc de la Rochefoucauld, one of the f my favorite lines from his memories of travels in North America, and he, as he did visit Asylum, but he traveled extensively in Pennsylvania, and he, his comment uh, was that art is not well acquainted with Pennsylvania roadways, <laughs> which I might say is true still today. <laughs> no offense, PennDOT, but anyway. Um, they, the majority of people would have come from Philadelphia and gone west to like Sunbury and then gone north. However, because again, it's fiction, so I could take a little bit of license. I had no information 
on how Bartholomew Laporte and Omer Talon themselves went there. So being more familiar, having lived in Philadelphia and so forth, I just decided that they would have gone by uh, stagecoach up to Bethlehem. And from Bethlehem, and I found that there was a coach indeed from Bethlehem to Philadelphia. Who knew? Um, and then they would have gone from Bethlehem up. There were roads. It would have taken a while, horseback, up. And then w when they got to Wilkes-Barre and then to Tunkhannock, then they would have taken the North Branch up. Going upstream in the Susquehanna is not easy. It's much easier to come downstream. The Susquehanna was the highway in those days. There were roads, but it wasn't, they weren't great. But they traveled in the summer, and the roads, unless they got a, a real gully washer rain, the roads were pretty good, you know, as far as hard-packed dirt. So they managed. You write about Durham boats in this. Durham people boats. people who don't know, what's a Durham boat? It's a flat-bottom boat pointed at both ends, sort of like a gondolier, a, a, a gondola on steroids, um, because it's wide and flat, very shallow draw. Um, I don't remember exactly, it's something like 16 or 20 inches, because the, the river is not always very deep, depending on the rain and so forth. And they were used extensively on the Susquehanna. Um, thousands in a, a th about a thousand a month could go past one single point. Um, and so they were, they carried people, they carried goods, and they made stops all the way along the river. You know, and also having them go that way, I could work the oldest house, my other, my other love, my other historic home that I, that I am on the board for and that I docent at. They, I could work that into, into the story because they stopped there for dinner, I think, or overnight or something. Is there any record of whether the people who lived there liked it? Asylum? Yeah. As I said, we don't really have any, you know, diaries or books or comments of people who, who actually lived there. Uh, there unfortunately, as I said, the only letter I found from somebody who actually lived there from Bartholomew was about sheep that he had gotten from so-and-so and he was complaining because two of them had died or something. So unfortunately, they didn't write that, or if they did, we don't have it. I would imagine that they found it not unpleasant because it was similar in, in, um, in a way to the, the countryside of, of France and where they would have had their great estates. Did they miss having their great estates? Undoubtedly. Because this was, as you said, a planned community. They had a house, and inside they had brought their gilt and their furnishings and their tapestries and so forth and so on. And, and it was very nice inside, but it was still a planned community. It wasn't like your own little castle and you go out of the gates and you've got all your territory to go riding in. So I don't know. I would imagine, but they, they made the most of it. They, they went picnicking and riding, and um, they enjoyed life as best they could. They loved their gardens, and they planted a lot of really nice gardens. Could it be self-sustaining, or did they have to trade? That to was the goal. With, with trade, it, I think, if, trade had, if the trade had flourished, I think it would have been self-sustaining. Who knows what would have happened? You know, it's kind of cool to think about. Um, but because the trade fell off and because Napoleon pardoned everyone, I think the winters were possibly the worst part for them. You said, did they enjoy it? Probably until about November they enjoyed it. And then in the wintertime, if you got a, a lot of snow, you were stuck there for maybe weeks. And, and that must have been very difficult for them. So of all the people who lived in that town, how did you decide who to write about? What happened was I started on the board and um, 
said, oh yeah, sure, I'll learn how to give tours. So you have to learn some of the history and so forth and so on. And then I started, uh, check. I, I cataloged what they, what French Asylum owns as far as their period clothing and added some of my own collection and started thinking about how I would do an exhibit and mount this exhibit. And it's a wonderful space for that kind of thing. It's, it's lovely and light and airy and lots of rooms and lots of opportunities for different kinds of um, exploration of what people wore when and how and for different things. So I spent a lot of time in the house and the person who attracted me first was Elizabeth, who's the first person you meet in the book. And she is Bartholomew's granddaughter. Um, but oddly enough, it didn't end up being a book about Elizabeth. It really ended up being a book about Bartholomew because the more I learned about him and <clears throat> the more I wrote about him, the more I liked him. So he's, I would say, the central character. And of course, he marries a woman named Elizabeth. And they have John, and then John marries twice. Um, but his first wife, he has three children, one of whom is Elizabeth the Younger. So Bartholomew was the the ringleader of it all? Well, he was. He and Omer Toulon were the ringleaders, if you want to use that <laughs> term, of asylum. Um, but he's the main, um, as I said, he's the paterfamilias of the report. Did I read that Omer Toulon had a plan to rescue Marie Antoinette and bring her to his Not island. in my book you didn't read that. I guess I, I read it because there there's th things online <laughs> there about may it. Well, people wanted to rescue Marie Antoinette. They knew by the time they started building his island, they knew that King Louis XVI had been guillotined. But Marie Antoinette wasn't guillotined until 1793. I think it was October 16th. Um, so they didn't find out until 1794. So asylum was underway. The hope was, you know, the nobility would come to asylum, and then, well, who's more noble than the queen? Wouldn't that be amazing? Do you think Marie Antoinette would have ended up on the Susquehanna River? Frankly, no. But she might have visited, and she probably would have based herself in Philadelphia. But Philadelphia at the time, in fact, 1793 was quite a bad year, they had yellow fever epidemics every summer, and people would flee to the country, which in those days meant, you know, like Germantown or something, not far. But they would, they, would, they would go outside the city. And a lot of them would go outside the city and they would spend months in the countryside and they could have come to asylum. So could Marie Antoinette have done that? Absolutely. That, I think, is credible or believable. Um, settling there? I don't think so. But they did build a house for her at French Asylum called La Grande Maison, which was very grand indeed. It was very big. It was three stories high and uh, like 80 by 120 feet. It was huge. It had seven rooms on the two top floors and grand reception rooms and black walnut and marble staircases and just very ornate and very, like the Versailles. In fact, somebody referred to Asylum as the Versailles on the Susquehanna, which is a bit of a stretch. But Marie Antoinette did really like the countryside. She did enjoy rural pursuits. She liked bucolic beauty. In that sense, yes, Asylum would have fit her very well. Now, I, I don't know if it was from this book or from reading online, uh, Louis Philippe mm -hmm. visited Asylum. Yes, while well, he was Duc d'Orléans, when he was the Duke of Orléans, he visited Asylum. There was a period of, I think, close to 30 years where he was in exile when Napoleon was in power. 
and he went all over the place. <laughs> After he got tired of Europe, he came over and went all over North America, and he did visit his island. And as one of the weird artifacts that we have at his island is a bust of um, Louis Philippe that was carved when he was visiting, and then it was lost for a long time. Um, it's a wooden bust until it was found, I think, in the 1920s under a porch of a house in a nearby town. Now, how they figured out, um, maybe there was a note with it or something, I don't know, but we do have that. And you mentioned the name Theophilou. Theophilus Casanova. Casanova. Uh, yeah. Who was he? He was a Dutch uh, businessman who was living in Philadelphia at the time, 1793, and um, he was always looking for a good investment. And he also had a uh, reputation of having a wonderful table. So if you got to go to his dinner and invited to, to go to his dinner house for dinner, you were a lucky person. And he had like the, the elite, you know, the, the inner circle of, of society would go and visit him. And so he was instrumental in pulling together the consortium that became Asylum Company. But he didn't ever make any money on it. Not really. None of them really did. So um, when, uh, when did it, it start going downhill? Probably uh, about the time that Napoleon pardoned everybody. I think that was the worst part. As I said, that was the death knell because everybody left except four families. You can't have a, a settlement with four families. And um, so it just wasn't viable at that point. So they were safe going back to France at that point? Yes, because the pardons had been issued. And they went back knowing that they weren't going to get their stately homes and chateau back, but they preferred to be home. And a lot of them had left family there, and I guess they just wanted to go back. Did you find any living descendants of Many. the... Yeah, in fact, we have a Descendants Day every year at Asylum, and uh, we invite the descendants of any of the families who are at Asylum, not even the ones who ended up leaving, if there are any still here, because children of people like adult children, maybe the families went home, but the children stayed. We don't know that. So anybody, but usually it's the, f the four families who stayed who have the most descendants, and we invite them to come back. And this year we had, I think I had two, um, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's exciting for me. Um, we had the Laporte, a Laporte descendant, and there were about 10 of them who all came. And I think we had an Omey descendant as well. How'd you get into collecting period clothing? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. It seems don't. like it would take up a lot of space. It, oh, please. <laughs> yes. My friend Carla can tell you about that. She just helped me organize the, the collection that I have in my basement, stored in my basement, which is humidity controlled and in the dark and everything's safe. But um, I wanted to organize it by uh, period and, so, and also list everything. So when I need, for instance, in, in, if I'm doing a morning exhibit or something, not morning, morning as in sad, not morning as in time of day, I need to be able to look and pick out black, 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 black. Okay. Um, I started when I started, I got on the board of the oldest house. I was, became active there about a dozen years ago, and that's in Laceyville, as I mentioned. That was built around 1781. And uh, they had a few pieces, like five or six pieces of things that people had donated. And I said, well, let's group that together and, and put, you know, make something. So I did, and people, oh, that's nice. And I thought, it should be bigger. So I started going online and just looking and going to auctions and seeing and, you know, supplementing it with a few things. Well, hmm. 
500 pieces later, <laughs> at least. <laughs> Here I am. And it's, it's kind of fun because now I can specifically look for things like I'm looking for this particular period and can see what people have. Sometimes they don't know what they have. And you mentioned the oldest house a couple times. What is that? It's a house that was built, we think, in 1781. And it's in Laceyville, Pennsylvania. It's right on the Susquehanna River. Um, and we say we think because we, we just, we're having the dendrochronology study done now, but it's, the results aren't in yet. Um, there are various reports, one, one historical document that we've read. So we can't find the deed, so we, we don't know yet. We're still working on that. Hopefully we will find the deed and then we will know exactly when it was built. But we had a beam taken out when we were do redoing the foundation this past um, summer and the beam has gone off to Cornell for um, analysis. So they should be able to tell us the month and the year of that beam, and that was one of the original beams. So that will give us a pretty good date for when the house was built. But it, it could be 1781, could be 1786, or could be 1791. Those are the three times. But those were newspaper accounts 200 years later. We don't know if they were accurate or not. So 1781 is what I've always been told. So and you've it, written a series of books based on the oldest house? Yeah, I have four of those, and that's just a series, the ri A River in Time. They're all something in time. And that's not as much of a historical fiction as the Laporte Inheritance is, um, in the sense that that's f more fiction. There's even less stuff to learn about the people who lived there than there is about the Laportes. Because John Laporte, the son of Bartholomew, was a U.S. congressman, he was a judge, he was a banker, he was a lawyer, he was a Pennsylvania surveyor general. So there is documentation about him and his life, and there's more to learn about that. There's some, as I said, Elsie Murray's book, there are other books about his island. So you can learn stuff. Nobody's written anything about the oldest house. Um, but I focus on the second family to live there, the Sturdivant family. And it's actually, it's kind of, it's not science fiction, but it's, it's, a, it's about someone who, like me and like my fellow board members and tour guides is dressed in period garb at the oldest house waiting to give a tour and either falls asleep and has a dream or steps through a time portal into a wormhole and wakes up and it's 1795 and she cannot figure out how to get home. So obviously she stays because there are four books. So, <laughs> so and that, but that's, a, that's done. That series is finished now. Is the oldest house open to the public? Yes. Yeah, that's a 501c3 also. And um, we're open, uh, same roughly summertime. Summertime's a very busy time for me because I'm at both houses and about one day a week I'm at mine. <laughs> How far apart are they? Uh, the oldest house is right in Laceyville and about 20 miles, 24 miles away is French's Island. So it's not too bad, about 24 miles. So when you d decided you were going to write this historical novel uh, and you started with a, bl a blank everything, how did you commence? The Laporte inheritance yeah. to me. Well, as I said, I was spending a lot of time there mounting the clothing exhibit and moving furniture and restaging rooms and kind of making it like a house that you would want to live in because the mannequins with the clothes live in that house. That's the impression people get when they come. That's why I did it because when visitors come, I want them to feel like they've come to visit the Laportes. Oh, and here they are, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I was there a lot a lot, hours and hours and hours, and this, the house and its echoes just sort of spoke to me, if you want to get a little woo-woo. Um, and 
as I said, Elizabeth's story kind of struck me first, but Bartholomew's story is the one that I, the more I learned about him, the more I liked him, and he took over. You notice there's a doll on the front of the of the book, and that is the Laporte doll, and that story is sort of key to the book, but also I think why I kind of liked Elizabeth and her story. Not that I'm a doll person, because I'm really not, but uh, Elizabeth was a young girl, and her grandmother, who was Bartholomew's wife, gave her that doll. The dress that the doll is wearing was made from a dress that Elizabeth, Bartholomew's wife, had worn at Asylum. So there's a real link with Asylum there. And of course, the, the granddaughter knew the summer house that John Laporte built, the Laporte house, as her home, and her summer home. And she you know, grew up with it. She was about 11, I think, when it was completed. So this was part of her childhood. Um, and there's a very, um, whenever you write fiction, you have to have a hook or a, a, a general thread that goes through. And so I can't tell you what that is, but you read the book so you know. But there's, there's something connected with the doll and connected with Bartholomew that carries through the whole book that's kind of the, the unifying factor. But it also impacts Elizabeth and her life, especially later on. When you started to write, you said, okay, I want to write a book about this house, this town, these characters. Did you have an idea about what the plot would be, how it would turn out? Well, yes, because it was, as, in as much as it's fiction, it is history. So I couldn't suddenly have them all have a wonderful time and have a thriving life in a big town. No, I knew what would have to happen. And writing that part was very sad. Just like I knew Bartholomew was going to die. And writing that was very sad. And I have some people who've read the book said, I was crying. I said, I know, so was I. Um, but I, I knew more or less where I wanted it to go. Um, but mostly it's a family history. It's a history of how Asylum was built, why Asylum was built, what happened to the people who lived there, what were they like, what was life there like, and then what happened after the colony disbanded, if you will, and things sort of fell apart, what happened to the few people who were still there, and how did that legacy continue? And so I think I've tied all that together quite, quite neatly and fairly accurately. Well, you said that there's not a lot of records from here, diaries, or not first letters. source, not primary sources. No. So, how do you take those scraps of information that you have and and create characters that have personalities that that are distinct? Take Bartholomew, for example. I've read a couple of primary sources that indicated they referred to him as having a wonderful sense of humor. There was also a primary source that referred to him as being sort of a wise guy, kind of. Again, when you're reading anything, you have to consider the source because it's always filtered through whoever is writing that and whoever is saying that. Um, there was a third primary source that talked about when Bartholomew met Elizabeth. He fell instantly in love with her. She was quite a bit younger than he was, but he just pursued her until she got, she was old enough and she married him. Um, so I kind of let that boil for a while in my head and I thought well you know he was a very assertive clever man and sometimes that 
angers other people who are not as assertive or clever. You know, they don't like people. So they, I could see why he would be called a wise guy by somebody who's adult. Um, he was very funny. He was self-deprecating, and he had a great sense of humor. He, from that, I extrapolated that he was a very positive person. Um, and as far as falling in love with Elizabeth, oh my goodness, who wouldn't want a romantic hero? So I just sort of put that all together. And yeah, I, I added in qualities from people I know and people I love and things about them that I admire. And I made somebody who I think is real, but who also is really a very likable person. Um, and then the Elizabeth, there's two Elizabeths. Yes, they keep naming their kids after themselves. So the, it's very the, annoying. So the older Elizabeth was the one you thought was going to be the main character? No, younger. The older Elizabeth married Bart, uh, Bartholomew, sorry. Um, and I, she was an interesting character, and her whole family story is very interesting, and that's great. But that was less interesting to me than her daughter, um, no, than her, than her son, John's daughter, who they also named Elizabeth, who, to whom I refer as Lisette in the book. Was anybody born in Asylum? Yeah, John was. John, a lot of kids this were. John who John later Laporte, became a John Laporte, right, congressman? Bartholomew's son. He was born at the Grand Maison because they built the Grand Maison for the Queen, but uh, obviously weren't going to leave this big, beautiful house empty. So Omer Talon lived there, and so did Bartholomew Laporte. And then when they learned the Queen had been beheaded, they continued to live there. And then when Omer Talon's wife got sick and he went back to Belgium, Laporte lived there with Elizabeth, and John Laporte was, built, was born there. You also write murder mysteries? I do. What does it take to write a good murder mystery? Well, <laughs> an evil mind. Um, I um, work for a local newspaper, and I've written for the Rocket Courier for more years than I want to say. 20, I'll be living where I live for 28 years, and I've worked for them for about 25. In that time, I have covered several murders or mysteries, or both, in the area. Some out of the area also have migrated in because, you know, but, and they, they just fascinated me. And the, the one that got me started, I was just sitting in a preliminary hearing as part of what I was doing, reporting on this hearing, and thinking, listening to someone give testimony and thinking, this would make an amazing book. And the, there's a little voice in my ear whispered, so why don't you write it? And I thought, oh no. But I started, that was back in 2005. And I started writing then and um, haven't stopped yet. How do you do that where you can make a plot consistent throughout that doesn't have any hokey parts or oh, well, you hmm. gradually build it? I take, I like, it's like popcorn. I take the kernel and then I pop it. For instance, all of my murder mysteries are set in Western Massachusetts. So, and all the names are different. So somebody reading it may or may not realize who they're reading about. A lot of local people will read a murder mystery I've written and say, you know, that reminded me of the da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, right. And the other thing, I take other things that have happened, burglaries, robberies. Um, there was a case uh, near me several years ago where the, um, in a nursing home they were giving the patients liquor to keep them quiet. That kind of stuff, and that because it's just like life. It's like a Bruegel painting. You know, everything doesn't just. There's not a murder that happens, and nothing else happens. Fifty million other things are happening, and my main character is a journalist. Huh? Big surprise. And she has a very out of the box way of thinking. So she helps 
the police um, and the county detective solve the mysteries by thinking that way as opposed to very linearly, which is the way law enforcement tends to think. They're very good, but sometimes it's who you know. And like me, my character in, in the murder mysteries knows a lot of different people from a lot of different social strata. And she can kind of put two and two together and come up with a solution sometimes. She doesn't always have a solution. How complicated do you make it? Because some murder mysteries some are, are pretty Well, they're pretty, no, they're pretty complicated. Are <laughs> some are pretty complicated. It depends on the, on the mystery. Um, but I don't like simple things. I don't, I don't like it when my, my beta readers say, well, I knew who it was in the beginning. It's like, oh, I failed. You know, I don't like that. I like them to keep guessing. And sometimes I, I lead them down the merry path, and they think, like the most recent one is Apple of My No, that's not the most recent. The second most recent is Apple of My Eye. And until the very end, you're pretty sure you know who did it. And you think you think you got it, you think you got it, you think you got it, and then at the very last, the epilogue, it's like, oh, no, it wasn't that person. So, or, or maybe it was. So I try to make it, I try to put a twist in. And some of these are unsolved. Some of these are just, we don't know what really happened. Do you ever find yourself going in one direction and, and getting stuck? Not so and much getting stuck, but not liking it and saying this is stupid, it won't work. And so I go, and sometimes I start a book because I just really need to write the book and I have no idea who the murderer is. And then I find out along with everybody else as I do the book. Sometimes I change who the murderer is halfway through. Do you write fast or slow? I think I write pretty fast. I usually do three or four books a year. So I guess that's fast. Now this is a long book. The Laporte Inheritance is 400 pages and that took about six months to write. I type fast. I thank my mother for that. She made me learn how to type when I was 13. So I type about 90 words a minute. How much of this um, did you have uh, did you have research before you started writing it? Mm. I think I researched for about two months, which sounds like ugh, nothing. But uh, well, we're talking two or three hours a day, maybe more, for two months. And then as I was writing The Laporte Inheritance, Usually when I write, even when I write murder mysteries, I, which are totally fiction except for the kernel of truth that I'm working from, <clears throat> I heavily research. Because even though I'm a murder mystery author, I don't know a lot of things, especially about one, one of the books. The more recent book is, um, has to do with Egyptian embalming practices. Well, I don't know too much about that, so I had to research that. Anyway, for the other historical fiction and for murder mysteries, Normally I'd spend like one hour researching and two hours writing. That's about the, this was the other way. I would spend, even as I was writing it, even having done the preliminary research and thinking, okay, I've got enough to start. I would write and I would research about two hours for every hour of writing. And it got, it, it took a long time, but I could not do it otherwise. Because if I wanted, for instance, Bartholomew and Omer Talon to come up from Philadelphia to Asylum. I had to figure out how they were going to do that. I had to figure out how fast a horse would go. I had to figure out where they would stay. I had to look at the route. I had to find, believe it or not, a map of Philadelphia in 1793, which exists, and uh, a thing about a history of the roads that they would take. Well, was that road there? No, it wasn't. Oops, where would they have gone? So there was a lot of research. If someone would watch you while you're writing, what would they see? A woman with a laptop on her lap on her back porch facing into 
the west where there's a meadow and my cat would be there. He's very intrigued by my porch. He lo it's screened and I'd be talking to myself probably as I write because and reading some of the stuff as I, as I write it to make sure it flows properly. You know. Now with this book in particular, once you were done the first draft of it mm -hmm. and you went back, how different is the final product from the first draft? Not too bad, um, surprisingly so. Not too bad at all. There were a couple of things that I found out literally weeks before I was ready to go with the final that were like, uh-oh, I have to change that. So I had to go back into the manuscript and find wherever I'd mentioned whatever and change it. So Because if you find historical documentation of something, um, there's a, a house that I referred, referred to in the first draft as um, a house where the young man who eventually marries Lisette, the, the girl who got the doll, okay, when she grows up. I had located that house because I thought that was where the family house was. Well, so I thought, oh, I'll, I'll use that house. I found out that that was not their family house. That was the Wells's family. They, they, the Wells family didn't live there until later, after this, that person would have been in my book, uh, the period I was writing about. It was somebody else, who the Terry family, I think, who lived in that house. I thought, oh. So I had to go back and take out all those references and move his house to somewhere, and I didn't know where the house was. And at that point, I was not going to try to research to find out where the house was. So I just created a house somewhere, and I actually added a little something. I made it up on a hill on a bluff so he could see Lisette, because the xylem is a plat flat plain, and then there are hills behind it. So I placed the house that this young man was in. He was farming it, and then he would turn it over to his brother. Um, but I placed it on a, on a hillside so he could actually look down over a xylem and he could see Lisette as she was riding because she would ride and he could see her going wherever she was going and usually she would come up that road, that hill, and head down to Wyalusing. So I thought, well, that'll work, you know, but... Did any non-French people live there, move there? Some of the low... Oh, uh, after a while... I don't believe, they married into the family. There was a Dr. Jabez Chamberlain, Chamberlain, whose wife Irene was English and Irish, English and Scottish, yeah. And they lived there, but of course the husband was French. Um, so not till later, I don't think. And you are a direct descendant of Eleanor of Aquitaine, King Louis VII of France, and Charlemagne. <laughs> yes. How'd you find that out? Uh, genealogy. I blame my friend Jean in England because <laughs> she was very into her genealogy and I go to visit her usually every year and one year I went over and she said, would you mind if we went to such and such graveyard? Oh no, I don't care. So we went and we, I spent the, most of the vacation tramping around gravesites finding her relatives. Um, <clears throat> and she said, oh you really ought to look up yours. So I got home, I was like, yeah I suppose. And we're going back more than ten years. and. Uh, yeah, about 10 years. And we, I went online, I went to Ancestry.com and um, a few other sites and found some things. And I knew some things, but, but I found records only as far back as about 16-something um, or 17-something. And I, 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 there was one ancestor, Alexis de Benedict Courville, and I thought, oh, I have to find out who that is. 
and I posted a, a query on one of the, it wasn't Ancestry, it was on one of the other bulletin boards, and I said, does anybody know about this guy? Because this is as far back as I can go. I know, you know, he had this child, and this had this child, and this had this child, and then it was my father, and I have that part, but I need to go further back. And about a month later, I heard from somebody, and she said, well, who did he marry? And I said, oh, the Alexis that I'm descended from married so-and-so. Okay, well, then I have your genealogy, and she sent me this whole thing, and I thought, how did she get that? But because, again, because it's a royal lineage, it was saved, you know, so I was, I lucked out. We just have a little bit of time left, but we should tell people if uh, they want to read your murder mysteries, they are not under your name. No, they are actually under my father's great-grandmother's name. Why'd you do that? Why not? <laughs> um, I didn't want to write, because I write under my Americanized name, Deborah Corville, for the newspaper. I didn't want to write the murder mysteries under the same name for obvious reasons. You've got to, I've got to keep my head separate, and I want my readers to be able to keep everything I write separate. And so, the author of the murder mysteries, the name you use for that is? Eugenie West, which is like Eugenie with an I-E and West. And again, if someone wants to visit uh, French Asylum, where mm -hmm. do they go and when do they go? Well, we're open from um, the end of May through sometime in September. It changes every year depending on what our schedule is and the events that we have planned and we do have a website we're also on Facebook so if you just look us up there you can find us and um, the phone number is 570-265-3376 I think um, but that's on the website and also on on Facebook working on another book I'm I've got a murder mystery cooking now I started it in June but then stuff happened this summer so I haven't gotten back to it yet but I'm I'm getting there, and that's actually about English country dance, which is something I do, and um, that should be out next spring. Under the name Eugenia? Eugenie. Eugenie. Eugenie West. Eugenie yes. West. Right. Well, we are out of time. We've been <laughs> speaking with Deborah Debili de Corville, and she's the author of this book, The Laporte Inheritance, an historical novel of French asylum. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.